You're the only one who's examined them. You're the one who's going to be taking most of the heat. These are kids who are going to be taken care of by the state for the rest of their life. Castration by procrastination, I think is the phrase. Exactly right. That is still the most dreaded disease in pediatric emergency medicine. Red ear is the power's excuse for giving an antibiotic. We should have changed our practice. Henry's Law is never carry a coffin by yourself. That is not projectile bombing. That's a little spit-up, as we call it. If you're two years old and there's somebody putting their finger up your butt, it's not going to be a comfortable situation. Are you in trouble for having done that? Non-bloody diarrhea is basically a laundry problem, not a medical problem. That's brilliant. Welcome, Rick Cotta here with Greg Henry, Mel Herbert, and our guest today, we have a special guest, is Stephen Selps. Those of you who get pediatric emergency care know that Steve writes a column called Medical Legal Issues, and he's been doing that. Steve, how long have you been writing this column? Oh, about 13 years. Long time, long time. And so Steve, I think, is probably one of the most expert people we could have on to do our pediatric issue. We haven't really focused on peds specifically, and we're going to do that today. Steve is professor of pediatrics at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, vice chair for education, and he's at the DuPont Hospital for Children, which is just down the street from Philadelphia, where he's pediatric residency program director. Greg Henry on the line here, who is going to be giving his two cents. I'm going to give one cent, and Mel's going to give one cent. We've asked you for a list of topics. We're looking at what can you tell us about how to prevent emergency physicians from getting in trouble with kids based on your experience. You've acknowledged that you've been an expert on probably 70 or 80 cases over your career. Please help us out. Well, I think there's no question that children can be difficult to diagnose and manage in the emergency setting. They can't always tell you what's wrong, and the conditions they present with can be very confusing, and they change over time, so no one could ever say it's easy to practice emergency medicine with children. I think the main stumbling blocks in pediatrics are children who present with abdominal pain, children who present with fever, and, of course, a swollen scrotum. I think these are probably the three most common causes of malpractice lawsuits in the pediatrics. So we could start with abdominal pain. That's a tough one. Trying to make a diagnosis of appendicitis is never easy. And in all my years of practice, I continue to find cases that defy the odds. Children that I never thought could have appendicitis who sure enough turn out to have that condition. It really can be a very tricky diagnosis. And you can certainly make the diagnosis all the time if you get a CAT scan on every child who comes in with abdominal pain, but obviously we can't do that. We have risks involved with radiation, there's expense of getting a CAT scan, so you have to be selective, but you don't want to take a risk if you're really not having convinced yourself that this patient has a benign abdomen. Child comes in with fever, abdominal pain, you clearly have to take a careful history, perform a careful exam, and I think if the patient has just two of the three parameters, if there's a worrisome history, and maybe an impressive physical exam. It doesn't matter what their laboratory tests show. If you just have two of those three, it's probably time to call on a surgeon for help or consider admitting the patient for observation or going ahead and getting some studies like an ultrasound of the abdomen or a CT scan of the abdomen. You can't wait for the child to have a completely classic case with the abnormal history and abnormal physical exam and abnormal laboratory tests. They just don't all have that classic triad. Steve, let me ask you, with regard to what you may perceive to be the standard of care in the evaluation of abdominal pain in a child, does the rectal exam fit into this in terms of yes or no, particularly in the younger child? 
I don't think so. I think many of us have gotten away from rectal exams. Our surgical colleagues still criticize us for that, but I think most of us are not very accurate with our rectal exam in order to make a diagnosis. And there has been some literature out there to show that the rectal exam rarely adds much to making the diagnosis. I think that the surgeons are really backing off of that. I think that they read the same literature we do. And quite frankly, if you're two years old and there's somebody putting their finger up your butt, it's not going to be a comfortable situation for anyone. And I honestly believe that there's nobody who's got data that says that that adds to the accuracy of the diagnosis. Just think about it. If you're two, is it ever going to be good to have this going on? I I don't know why we bought into it for so many years, but I'll tell you right now, our surgeons have basically backed away. They don't even ask that question anymore. Unfortunately, the question they ask, it seems, is what's the CT scan show? And Totally depend on the age of the surgeon, Rick. I have plenty of surgeons who are smart enough to talk about other things other than the CT scan. And I think that article that appeared in the New England Journal talking about the radiation effects here was the best thing that ever happened to us. (laughs) Because when I talk to parents now about following their child, re-examining the belly in four hours, all that sort of thing, because you wouldn't want dangerous ionizing radiation shot at your child, you'd be amazed at how many patients have heard about this And now they're willing to go with our physical examination. I think that's the way to go on these cases. I am not a big CT guy, and I think that we're shooting too many rads at little kids. Steve, what's happening at the university? I think there is a lot of concern. Greg mentioned there, people don't want to get CAT scans unnecessarily. And certainly if you can observe the patient, re-examine the patient, that clearly is ideal. For those emergency doctors who are somewhat isolated, don't have a surgeon who can help them or not sure of themselves, you might in some situations get a CAT scan before you send the patient home if you're really not sure. If you can convince yourself with a physical exam, that's clearly ideal. Would you say, Steve, that if the physical exam says they've got appendicitis, I had a six-year-old boy probably last week, a slight elevation of the white count, slight temperature, pain in the right lower quadrant with rebound and guarding. You know what? Why not just take his appendix out? I think that the amount of harm done by doing the CT scan, because we don't know what the total effect is 30 years down the road, and now since they're using a scope to do it, uh, just take the appendix out. That makes the kid qualify for long-distance space flights in NASA. I don't see where having the appendix taken out, maybe 10% wrong, is a bad thing. I agree with you, but we aren't the ones to take it out. It's up to the surgeon. And I think, as you had said before, it does have something to do with the age of the surgeon. If you get an experienced surgeon to come in and examine that patient, they probably will go to the operating room just based on that exam that you mentioned. But then you're going to get some inexperienced surgeons, a resident physician who comes to evaluate the patient, is trying to talk to his attending by telephone, who may not get the true picture. Very often we end up getting a CAT scan to help that attending doctor make a decision. By the way, whenever you have that problem, you, as the attending, talk to their attending. Don't talk to the monkey. Talk to the organ grinder. At some point in time, you have to take some moral responsibility for what goes on here. So we've established that the rectal exam is not the standard of care in assessment of children who are suspected of having appendicitis. I would agree with everything that was said before. Now we've moved on to the CT scan. We acknowledge that we're doing probably too many of them. Steve, what do you think about the idea of doing an ultrasound first if that is available to you? 
Well, I think ultrasound is a great study, and if you have it available to you in your emergency department, you should take advantage of that. The results of the ultrasound very much depend on who's performing the study. So you must have a radiologist who's doing the study who's comfortable with pediatric abdominal ultrasound. But if the ultrasonographer is comfortable and if they can tell you they saw the appendix and it looks normal, that's highly reliable. You can then probably avoid your CAT scan. I think emergency physicians need to remember that if the ultrasonographer did not see the appendix, the study hasn't answered your question. You haven't ruled out appendicitis. You must see the appendix. That's also true on CAT scan. If the CAT scan doesn't show the appendix, you still haven't answered the question about whether the child has a problem or not. Steve's made a good point, and that is I found this to be tremendously operator and interpreter dependent. We have one guy that, quite frankly, he couldn't find a submarine in the Hudson River with that machine, and I don't even bother anymore. It kind of depends who's reading it. The other thing is there is a bias as to how they call it. We have one guy whose last name, by the way, happened to be Coombs many years ago, and we called the studies Coombs Positive because he never found an ultrasound that he couldn't find a positive finding on. Some of these things just drive you crazy. I don't want to be a mean old man here, but I really do like histories and physicals which point in the correct direction. We certainly can't overstate it, though. CT scan is an advance, and we're very good at this series and other series of saying it's bad, it's radiation, but there certainly is a place for it. So in the kid with a great exam and a great history, you're done. But when the kid is not clear, is it an acceptable standard to admit and observe, an acceptable standard to CT scan, an acceptable standard to ultrasound? Is there any difference between these medico-legally? As long as you write a good note, any one of those kind of things is fine. I would agree with that. It is acceptable to admit and observe. Your documentation clearly becomes important. It probably would be important also to involve a surgeon. If you thought this patient might have appendicitis and you're admitting and observing for that reason, someone's going to come back to you later on and say, well, why didn't you get a surgeon involved in the case? So I think I would still consult a surgeon, and then you may decide together to admit and observe the patient without getting any further studies. Again, to play the devil's advocate here from a smaller community hospital, I sometimes, if it's midnight, I'll send them home, not admit them, send them home, no fluids, see them back at 7 o'clock in the morning. And I think they get just as good a care as if you put them upstairs in the hospital because nobody's going to see them at 2 o'clock in the morning anyway. You see them in eight hours or seven hours, and in that period of time, you get to follow and see how the child is progressing. The other argument about saying, well, get a surgeon involved, what are they, magic people? Do they have some skill in their hands that I don't have? I don't want to make them overly important in making this diagnosis. You and I get to make the diagnosis as well. They take out the appendix, but you and I only send them probably one out of 20 or 30 or 40 abdominal pains we see in a child. Well, I would agree with you, and I certainly am more confident in my assessment than some of the resident surgeons who come to evaluate my patients. I think from a medical legal standpoint, though, it is helpful. In retrospect, if there is a malpractice lawsuit, it certainly is helpful to say, I consulted the surgeon. They also agreed with me that this was not a high probability for appendicitis. So it does serve to diffuse the blame a bit, and that can be important in a legal standpoint. Yes, Um, Henry's Law is never carry a coffin by yourself. It's always good to take a friend along with you to court. Steve, can I ask you a question about that exact scenario where, let's say you've got a kid, they're on the fence, you're not sure, you send them home for overnight and bring them back in the morning, which is something that's done all the time. Let's say they come back the next morning, they're sicker and they're perforated. Are you 
in trouble for having done that? Is somebody going to say, look, you should have admitted them the day before? If your charting is good, have you practiced at the standard of care of, as the local emergency physicians in your group kind of thing? So you're fine as long as you've documented well? Or is there uh, a risk I, to sending them away? There is a risk. I think if your charting is good, if you've carefully examined the patient, and if our colleagues would agree that no one else would have thought to make the diagnosis of appendicitis at that time, I think you're going to have a good chance of defending yourself. I'm sure they're going to find an expert witness somewhere who's going to say, doctor, why didn't you get a CAT scan on this patient? If you were concerned about appendicitis, don't you have a CAT scan available to you 24 hours a day? Why didn't you get a CAT scan? And you just have to be prepared to defend that situation. And as Greg mentioned, there are defenses. There's risk to getting a CAT scan, and you might be able to defend it by saying it wasn't necessary. By my exam, by my history, it wasn't necessary. I thought it was better for my patient to bring them back in a few hours and re-examine the patient. If I could go back one bit to the ultrasound idea, I have at certain lectures I've given basically said you ought not do a CAT scan of the abdomen if an ultrasound is available. I know that's a rather polar position and I know that that's not the standard of care, but when we're talking about an operator-dependent tests, it's really pretty clear that in some of the studies, these ultrasounds are really quite good. And I think that maybe we should be driving these ultrasounds being done more than we do and not to say, well, it's too operator dependent. It would seem that given the fact that there is no radiation associated with it, it's a little jelly on the belly. If it gives you the answer in a certain subset of cases, even if it's 50% of the cases, then you would decrease the incidence of radiation for these kitties by 50% in this two-step model. But I'd agree I agree with you 100%. By the way, Steve, I think that there is a difference between what we do in the community hospital, the small country hospital sometime, as opposed to the university center. And there's no way I'm going to get certain things done at a certain hour. But there's also no question that I have a relationship with patients who will listen to me, will come back. And I'm not sending the child out into nothingness, which unfortunately in some of the big cities is what happens. You just feel uncomfortable to follow up. But over the years, I've done several hundred pediatrics cases. And whenever the appendix case comes up, it's always the follow-up time. Our guys get more trouble by saying, well, they're not better. And first of all, they tell them a lie. They tell them they got viral gastroenteritis, which they don't have. And secondly, they say, if you're not better in two or three days, come back. See, to me... A kid with an abdominal pain, come back in eight hours and we'll refill the belly. That is clearly a much more safe way to practice medicine. Two days is not going to be helpful to anyone. No, you could be sitting Shiva in two days. You need to have this in some sort of arrangement where we can get this thing done in a reasonable time frame and not just expect that technology will always bail us out. Because I'll tell you, the CT scan is still, in everybody's studies, still 5 to 7% wrong. Now, maybe the physical exam is 10 to 15% wrong, but neither one of them is perfect, so just see them back. Even at my hospital, sometimes we will admit the patient to the hospital. The surgeon's not willing to go to the operating room and just wants to watch the patient overnight and see how they do in the morning, and I think that does meet the standard of care. I was in England. You never saw surgeons take anybody to the operating room at midnight or 1 o'clock in the morning for an appendicitis. Never. They just gave them antibiotics and did them in the morning. And they said it didn't well, make any another, difference. That is a, that's a valid another. approach. There's a lot of people doing that now. One thing we didn't talk about, to be able to communicate effectively with the radiologist. First of all, the radiologists are very often critical of emergency physicians. They're saying that we get too many CAT scans. And I would agree with Rick. I would be much happier to get an ultrasound if we could. 
Unfortunately, after hours, it's very difficult at my hospital and many hospitals across the country to get an ultrasound because the radiologists are not available to do it and don't want to come in to do it. And I think if we could make that study more available 24 hours a day, we would be able to cut down on the CT scan and the radiation. But I also think it's up to the emergency physician to communicate with the radiologist and tell them, this is what I'm worried about. This is what I'm looking for. And the radiologist has to communicate back and say, this is what I found. I didn't see the appendix. So you might want to go ahead and get another study because we haven't been able to answer your question. By the way, the last time I checked, a radiologist doesn't have to come in. The tech does the study and sends that study electronically to wherever they're at. Quite frankly, we could have a pediatric ultrasonographer look at everyone in the country after midnight. We could just send it to one of various centers where they're actually reading, couldn't we? That could be set up. I'm hoping we'll get to that in the future. Again, there has been a lot of good discussion with radiologists and emergency physicians. There was a national conference a few months ago to discuss that, and there's further discussion coming up at our national meetings to try to work out some situations like that. The cases I have seen, it is communication with the parents about what the possibilities of disease might be. If a kid has an appendix, could it still be appendicitis? Sure. But again, the best phrase is, I wouldn't operate on my own child given this set of symptoms. I think people have to be angry or disappointed to bring that lawsuit. And if they understand that it's still in the mix of disease entities you're considering, I think they'll put up with a lot more stuff and bringing their child back at a specific time to be reexamined. And as you had said earlier, telling the parents a child has gastroenteritis is going to make them angry when it turns out to be an appendicitis. So I think you do want to be honest and say, we haven't ruled it out. It's a possibility. We don't think that's what it is at this moment, but it's a condition that evolves over time. And the best thing would be to recheck the child in a few hours. I think as long as you've met their expectations, you are less likely to end up in a malpractice lawsuit. What are the damages here in these cases? Why are they going to court? Why should dollars change hands here? The diagnosis is ultimately made in all of these cases. And some of these cases naturally rupture and some of them don't rupture. So what's the big deal here? First of all, the malpractice lawsuit probably is not going to occur unless there is a rupture and then complications, a prolonged hospitalization and a complication such as that. And then, unfortunately, there are some expert witnesses who will get up and say that those complications were related to the emergency physician's delay in management and forget the fact that in a large number of cases, the children present with a rupture. It's not necessarily malpractice to operate on a ruptured appendix. Many, many of the cases are ruptured at the time of surgery, and it does not always mean that there was a malpractice that the physician fell below the standard. Of care. The Massachusetts General Hospital published a study on children under three years of age with appendicitis. 90% of them at the time of operation were frankly ruptured or leaking. It's a tough diagnosis in a little tiny kid, and I don't think that in and of itself should be in any way considered a breach of the standard of care. I agree. There is also a claim that some people make from a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine more than 20 years ago that infertility can result from the adhesions that form after a ruptured appendix in a young girl. This has really never been well documented, but it's been debated and unfortunately is brought up in many malpractice cases that this young child is now going to suffer from infertility when she becomes of childbearing age. And we need to get our expert witnesses in line that there really is no proof of that. 
or let's give them the money when they don't have a child. We'll wait 20 years, and uh, if you don't have a child, we'll, we'll consider giving you the money then. I exactly. think that this is a great example of a situation where it's very, very difficult to show that you have damages, even if it's ruptured as a result of delay. Okay, you stayed in the hospital one or two days longer than you would have. I mean, what's the big deal? Is that worth $50,000, $100,000? Yeah, this is the pain and suffering question, too, Rick, that let's say their child, instead of having two days in the hospital, has six days in the hospital and a slower time of recovery. There's not going to be some huge award. They want something for that, quote unquote, pain and suffering, because nobody's willing anymore to understand that there is a natural spectrum of disease and some are easy to pick up and some are extremely difficult. Is there anything further to conclude in these cases? I think we've hit the highlights. I guess one other thing would be to not to overuse antiemetics. If the patient is continuing to vomit, don't just assume this is a gastroenteritis and give some more antiemetics and the child will be fine at home. If the child's continuing to vomit, there's probably something wrong, a little more serious than a gastroenteritis, and we might want to keep that patient and observe that patient until we're convinced that this child's going to do well. Steve, speaking of the febrile child who may have some kind of abdominal issues, have you gotten into any cases involving failure to diagnose a urine infection? This is a real, I think, quagmire, this idea of casting all of these little girls and these uncircumcised boys who've got fevers and they don't seem to have any source. What's happening at DuPont? I wouldn't say there are a lot of lawsuits resulting from that. I'm sure we do over catheterize or unnecessarily catheterize many patients because we are concerned about a urinary tract infection. I think in a young infant where you're not sure the source of the fever, it probably is worth doing it because the incidence is fairly high in young infant girls and maybe uncircumcised infant boys. Once they get a little bit older, it's not routine to do that. I think that it's what, 50 times as more common in females as males. But I think, again, the judgment question comes into play that if you've got a a one-year-old who's running around eating the popsicle, stealing stuff out of the drawers, is that the same thing as a genuinely sick-looking infant? I'd like to think that there is some judgment here that when kids look really sick, we are going to do different things. And I think kids, when we walk in the room, we know in the first 10 seconds how aggressive we're going to be just by the way that child appears. Yeah, I think that's really the key in evaluating a febrile infant or child. If the child looks well, it's no longer the standard of care to get lots of diagnostic studies, CBC and blood culture and urine culture. That is not routine anymore. You have to, though, convince yourself that the child looks well and be honest with yourself. If it's late at night, the child's sleeping, you might not want to take any chances with a child like that. But if the child is up and playing, like you said, it's not the standard of care to go and get diagnostic studies on a child like that anymore. Let me tell you the most dangerous phrase on a chart that I've seen over the last 34 years, at least from a medical legal standpoint, is when the nurse has written lethargic child. To me, lethargic child means I should be looking for the spinal needle someplace. That doesn't mean a kid who's yawned twice just before the examination. Have you seen the same thing, Steve? Yes, I have seen documentation like that. It always worries me when someone writes that. But children will look lethargic at times. If their fever is up, they're going to look lethargic. I just want to make sure I'm not going to send that patient home with that on their chart. I want to make sure that the child is up, happy, active, playful before they go home. And I'm going to document that. The child is no longer lethargic. The temperature is down. And now the child is happy and playful and active. And then I think you're safe in your defense.
almost always, if I see that written on the chart, I will then in my note say, nursing note appreciated, which is shorthand for nursing note unappreciated, but I got to answer it. <laughs> and I say something like, at this time, the child appears in the following manner. And I feel comfortable that they're doing X, Y, and Z. By the way, do you think that there's any value? A child comes in with a temperature of 102.5. There are all kinds of hospitals out there that have procedures in their emergency department that say you have to repeat the temperature. Is there any scientific basis to that? Not that I know of. And certainly we send children home with fever all the time. There's nothing wrong with that. Thousands of children are at home today with fever. There's nothing wrong with that. Fever is a normal reaction to an infection or many other conditions in the body. We shouldn't be afraid of that fever. And the pediatrician's offices are full of those kids, right? Exactly. And they send them home all the time. As long as you're comfortable that the patient looked well and that you're not falsely justifying that, there's no reason why you can't send that patient home and not worry about what the temperature was like when they left. Well, it seems like we morphed from abdominal pain over into the febrile child. Is there anything we also want to clean up on the abdominal pain cases before we really focus a little bit more on the febrile child? We talked about urine. We talked about rectals. We talked about these imaging studies. I guess we don't need to remind anybody about the nonspecificity of blood counts, although they're routinely done and it's a lot easier to do a blood count than it does to do a CT scan. I just think that the blood count is one of those things that you can use to sell the case to the surgeons. But as nobody's ever shown me that there's reasonable correlation between having an appendicitis and having an 11,000 white count. Well, that's true. But if it's 20,000 or 25,000, you're going to think twice. And you got to acknowledge, Greg, that they will be ordered routinely. So there's not a lot of merit in spending time about that silly test. Do you get a CBC on every kid who comes into the department, Rick? Of course not. Yeah, of course not. not. These, are, these are only the kids where you are concerned that there's something genuinely going on here. So we've kind of morphed over to the fever, which is kind of ubiquitous in children. And we've acknowledged that it doesn't make a lot of sense, despite some hospitals doing it, requiring that the fever come down before the child is sent home. It's just going to keep that kid around the department, making everybody miserable for an unnecessary long period of time. Can I make one point and see what you think about it? There are many kids who come in, 102, 103. The doctor evaluates a kid and says, ah, here's the problem. The kid's got a red ear. I would like to suggest that a red ear does not cause 103 fever. Where do you stand on that, Steve? Well, otitis media can cause fever, but I agree with you. You have to be careful before you say that's the cause of the fever. If I have a child with a very high fever, I have to be very, very convinced that this is not just a red ear, but a very distorted ear with pus coming out before I'm convinced that that's what's causing this child's high fever. You still want to carefully examine the patient. The red ear is the coward's excuse for giving an antibiotic. In fact, somebody once told me, one ear is always slightly redder than the other ear, <laughs> and that's the ear you claim is having the otitis media. The reason I brought that up is because I think the literature is pretty reasonable about suggesting that a fever of 103, you can't get a systemic infection response to a little ear pus kind of thing. I mean, you could have a big boil on your butt and you don't get 103 fever. And I think that in many of these cases, these kids have a viremia, which is causing the fever. And simultaneously, oh yes, there is some otitis as well, but it is not Therefore, that 103 is coming from the ear. I think that that's a mistake. We don't have any other models for that in medicine where a little tiny little abscess behind the eardrum is going to cause you to be systemically so sick. We don't always know what caused the fever. It was it the ear infection or a virus or something else. The important thing is to 
convince yourself that the child looks well, then I'm not just using an ear infection as an excuse for the fever. I just want to be convinced that this child looks well enough to go home, and I've documented that on my emergency record, that there was nothing else going on before I just put the patient on antibiotics for a presumed ear infection. Our biggest problem is we've built a culture where for the last 50 or 60 years, mother has taken a child into an emergency department or a doctor's office and expects to leave with a pink bottle that smells like bubble gum. And what we should really do is just give mother a bottle, a little Xanax in it, and let her take that at home because the child's going to be doing all right. The Europeans have gone another direction on this. If you're in Holland today, they aren't going to treat most ear infections in the first three days. In fact, they'll give them a script and say, if they're not better in three days, fill the script. And like less than 5% of the scripts get filled. Well, the American Academy of Pediatrics, in conjunction with the American Physician Association there, whatever they're called, came out with these otitis guidelines that said cases that don't have high fever and they're kind of equivocal, you can sit on. Although, honestly, it would be very interesting to do a study to see whether anybody has paid any attention to those guidelines whatsoever. Here's what I think that emergency doctors need to be worried about in terms of a febrile child. I think the example that Gray gave where the child's running around pulling things out of your drawer, happy as could be, you don't need to worry about that child. You're not missing anything serious. It's the one who's laying in bed with a high fever, and maybe because of their fever, they don't feel well, they don't look well. You don't want to be in a hurry to send that patient home. You want to keep them in your department, give them antipyretics. Maybe they need fluids, but you want to be convinced that they're up and around and looking like a normal two-year-old before you let them leave the department. And unfortunately, we have a lot of pressure in our overcrowded EDs to get that bed empty, get the patient out, get them home. We need another bed for the next patient. But I resist that temptation if I'm not satisfied with the way the child looks. I'm just not going to let them go home yet. I think the other thing that emergency doctors need to be concerned with is the very young infant, the infant less than three months or so. There's no question that the rates of bacteremia are way, way down in older patients because all the children have been immunized. But the first three months of life, A, they haven't been immunized, and B, they're somewhat immunosuppressed. Their immune system is not working as well as an older child, and they are at risk for more serious bacterial infections. So we do need to take the younger infants a little bit more seriously and consider getting diagnostic studies on those children if we don't have a good source for fever. Now, Steve, Rick and I both came from that era where the very young febrile child, the age cutoff has changed dramatically from when we were young in this specialty. You know, it was six months, then it was four months, then it was three months, then it was two months, then it was six weeks. I mean, the spot where you become an automatic fever workup looking for things like meningitis has dropped like a stone in the last 10 years, I would say. Well, I'd agree. And there are studies to help us with that. I think there's no question in the first month of life, those are the children at the greatest risk. And there's very little debate that a baby in the first month of life with a fever should get the whole works, including the spinal tap. A baby in the second month of life, four to eight weeks, there's some debate about that. I usually follow the Philadelphia Protocol. I was involved in some of the studies done in Philadelphia, which show that you're probably better off doing all the studies if they're all normal, can send the patient home. And I know not everyone agrees with that. There are many emergency physicians that say, if I have a baby who's six weeks old who looks rather well, I'm not going to do a spinal tap. But there is some debate about that. Many of us would do the spinal tap, and if it's normal, then we'll send the patient home. Beyond two months of life, you're really on your own. There are no protocols for what studies you should do. You have to be guided by your gut feeling and how the patient looks. In those kids that are over two months, is it now pretty routine to just check a urine. If you're a minimalist, the one thing you would do is check a urine in girls up to the age of one year, two years, boys up to the age of six months. 
Yes, I think that's safe medicine. And again, if the patient really has no source in a three-month-old, I might get a CBC and a blood culture on that three-month-old because, remember, they're not fully immunized. They still may be at some risk. And it's hard to tell if the patient looks well in a three-month-old. A three-year-old, it's easy to know who looks well and who doesn't. A three-month-old, that's a little tougher to assess whether this is a normal-looking baby or not. So we may do a few more blood tests in that age group. Steve, let me ask you to play truth or dare time When I go back and look at the cases in our own group, it is not the initial exam that is the problem. It's we have very few people who actually document on the chart the second examination. And so when it comes time for any legal question, we know that the first time you came in, and by the way, I don't think any law case has ever revolved around pupillary responses in a kid. But now if they've been in there for two hours or three hours, just waiting for some study to come back and them to finish their popsicle or their Pedialyte or whatever they're drinking, there's no reassessment on that chart. I think that's a problem medically, legally. Well, I agree with you 100%. And it gets back to the nurse saying the patient looked lethargic. Many of them look lethargic when they first come in, but you just don't want to send them home looking lethargic, and you probably wouldn't. They probably looked great by the time they went home, but you have to document that in your chart. There's an emergency physician in Philadelphia, Bruce Hart, who always makes that line that, did you tell the chart? And when the resident comes and tells me the child looks great, I'm sending him home, I say, thanks for telling me, did you tell the chart? You have to put that in the record that I've reassessed the patient, now he looks great, ready to send him home. And I do think that's a pitfall. A lot of emergency physicians fail to document well. Well, it seems to me you have to basically create a chart that is internally consistent with the disposition or you'll have a problem with the deposition. You have to create the go-home chart. That's what you're intending to do. You have to paint that kid, as you said, happy, active, playful, alert. And one of the key phrases I personally use is, because it's such a deadly diagnosis, is I put on every kid's chart, no petechia, because maybe I'm a little sensitive to it, but we were stung in a case where meningococcemia was the problem. And it is one of the few diagnoses that will kill you quickly. And you may not appreciate the kid is as sick as they are when they get there because they haven't gotten down to the point where it's obvious that anybody can pick it up. But I do think it's an important thing to consider. Yes, it's not going to happen you in 99% of the kids, but I think it's a good thing to do. Just parenthetically, in my career in emergency medicine, I remember when we were picking up one in two kids a week with meningitis. I haven't seen a kid with bacterial meningitis now in the emergency department, which granted is a community emergency department in the last 10 years, I would say. Meningitis is far less likely than it used to be. If anything, but that the danger of cause- that, Steve, is then it falls down and we're less likely to think about it. Exactly. It's the problem. Uh, some of the younger physicians don't think about it at all. They don't remember what it was like. They may not recognize it when they see it. We still have to be on guard. There are still some children out there with meningitis, and we still need to worry about that when we have a febrile child in front of us in the emergency department and carefully assess the patient for that. Steve, are you seeing herpetic encephalitis at all in Philadelphia? Yes, we do see that, and I think that is something to worry about. If you have a young infant in the first month of life with a fever, That is clearly something that you need to worry about. And there's some debate about whether every one of those children should get started on a cyclovir as soon as you see them in the emergency department. I think that's the safest way to go. A cyclovir is a pretty benign drug. And if you have a little baby in the first month of life with fever, it's maybe a good idea to use that drug. Certainly if the patient is at all ill, has seizures, you're going to get into trouble if you haven't started a cyclovir right away. Yeah, what I've told the residents at this point is... 
just go ahead. And if you're going to treat for bacterial meningitis, you might as well add an acyclovir chaser to the program. Is there any reason not to do that? Well, again, some purists say it's an expensive drug. You don't want to do that for everyone. But to me, if you're at all worried about the baby, I think acyclovir is the way to go. Yeah, and uh, the cost of that drug is nothing compared to... We, we, we don't know how good it is, but certainly... These are kids who are going to be taken care of by the state for the rest of their life if it's bad. This is a serious disease entity. And one more thing about herpes simplex encephalitis. Even a child who's not febrile, emergency physicians can get into trouble if they see a rash on the child's scalp or anywhere on the child's body. If it's a vesicular rash in the newborn period, you don't want to misdiagnose that as a staph infection. You should consider that this could be a herpetic infection. The vesicular lesion on the scalp in particular often gets misdiagnosed as, well, maybe there was a fetal monitor there in utero, and those turn out to be herpetic lesions, and then a week or so later, the baby comes down with herpetic encephalitis. So be suspicious of vesicular lesions in little babies, and if you're not sure, ask for a consult. If you can't get a consult, it's probably safer to treat that patient with acyclovir while the workup is in progress. One last comment about the petechiae. I would agree with Rick about documenting on your chart that there was or was not a rash, that there were petechiae or not petechiae. That is going to be helpful in the defense in case the child does develop meningococcemia down the road. I think most of us would agree it's tough to make the diagnosis unless there's a petechial rash, and the absence of that rash is going to be helpful to the emergency physician. There are cases of meningococcemia without rash, and I think if the child also looks ill, if the child has limb pain, back pain, diffuse bone pain, we should think about meningococcemia in that situation too. Of course, the flu can cause limb pain, but if the child doesn't have a runny nose and cough in the middle of the flu season, you should consider the fact that maybe this is one of those rare cases of meningococcemia and be a little more concerned about that child. Anything further on this list that relates to fever that we should cover? I don't know if you want to get into it here, but in terms of calling the pediatrician, I've seen that practiced by many emergency doctors. They'll call the pediatrician to get some advice about management, and the pediatrician says, send them home, I'll see them tomorrow. I hope all of the emergency physicians listening recognize that you're the one who's got the patient in front of you. You're the one who's responsible for the child, and if you're worried about the way the child looks, don't just give in to that pediatric consultant over the phone. In the long run, they're going to hold you responsible, not the pediatrician who didn't examine the patient. We came to an agreement with the pediatricians in one of the hospitals where I work, and that is we wouldn't disturb them at night at 2 o'clock in the morning telling them about a patient coming to their office the next day if they agreed to see everybody the next day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, over about a 14-year period, we never had one parent call us back who said they couldn't get in. God help us, we actually had coordinated health care as a decision, and when they were on call, they saw everybody at their office. And you know what? It worked pretty damn well. Because if you actually looked at the number of people who go to the pediatrician the next day, it's probably less than 10% of the people we send because the kid's better. And mother wakes up and says, how's the kid? Well, he's not febrile and he's eating breakfast. So they don't take him anyplace. Steve, uh, can I ask you a specific question about that then? Let's say I've got a kid. I'm a little bit worried. They've got a fever. I'm not exactly sure what's going on. I want them to be checked by their pediatrician the next day. Or I call the pediatrician. They say, send them home. I'll see them tomorrow. We send the kid home, something bad happens before they get to the pediatrician's office. What's your experience? What do the pediatricians say in the ensuing lawsuit? Do they say, if I had have known how sick they are, 
I would have come immediately in. Do they leave you out to dry, or how does it sort of go down? I would say that's the most likely scenario, and that's what their lawyer is telling them to do. You didn't see the patient. You didn't examine the patient. You didn't take a history from the mother, did you, doctor? So then you're not responsible for the patient. It falls back to the poor emergency physician who examined the patient and sent the child home. And that's why I say if the emergency doctor is at all uncomfortable, you're not obligated to follow the advice of the person on the phone. You should do what makes you comfortable. And if you don't think the child should go home, don't send them home. Tell the pediatrician to come in and see the patient, and then they can discharge the patient if that's the way they feel. But if you're the only one who's examined them, you're the one who's going to be taking most of the heat in the malpractice suit. So a follow-up question to Rick, who is a director of a department. What happens to the poor new graduate that is asking the pediatrician to come in, and they don't want to come in, and he does this two or three times, and there's big fights how do you balance this, I want them to come and see the patient versus I'm pissing off all your consultant stuff and you as a director are now pissed off at me? One of the things that I think you need to know as an option is that you can keep patients there till a more civilized time. There's no reason to send a kid home at 1 o'clock in the morning if you're at all concerned. Just keep that kid there. And at 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning when the light of day has arrived, people are much more amenable to coming in and helping you out. So you're in charge of who's in that department and how long they stay there. And I think that in those cases where you're having some difficulty, that you ought to just sit on those kids, see how they do, and the people are probably going to be more inclined to play ball with you in the morning. Now, that may be a bit of a cop-out, but it is a practical solution to some of these cases. Sending people home in the middle of the night when they could just stay there for another couple of hours, yes, I know the departments are crowded, etc., but we're talking about a case that has kind of gotten you a little concerned. I think that's a reasonable way to go, and if you talk to the parent, as Greg had mentioned earlier, and convince them of why you're worried, most parents are happy to stay under your supervision. You still have to make a decision about, am I going to start antibiotics while I'm watching the patient here? And there again, don't let the other caller, the pediatrician on the phone, talk you out of that. If you're worried about sepsis, you can start the antibiotics and have the child evaluated later on as well. In that regard, Steve, starting antibiotics, in kids who have lumbar punctures, even if the count comes back normal in terms of white cells, you don't know what the culture is going to show in a couple of days. What do you think about this idea? Well, I did a lumbar puncture. I was concerned. This kid, it was highly febrile. Is it not unreasonable to start some antibiotics pending the result of the culture? You've sent that test, and you don't know the results of that test. Right, and it's the blood culture that you're more worried about. It's very rare that if you have a normal lumbar puncture that the child's going to end up with meningitis. I am aware of one malpractice lawsuit I was an expert witness in where the child did develop overwhelming pneumococcal meningitis about 12 hours after a normal lumbar puncture. But that's pretty rare for that to happen. But still, you don't know what the blood culture is going to show. So if you're at all worried about the patient, it is still reasonable to start antibiotics and while you're waiting for the cultures to come back. I think that would be the standard of care. One thing we haven't talked about about febrile kids is, to me, one of the big reasons to keep kids around or admitting them is a social indication and not necessarily a medical indication. I've got parents who are fantastic, who I know will come back, I know will have the child reevaluated in six or 12 hours. I've got another group of parents who, quite frankly, I feel uncomfortable with. And so I think that there is a genuine social reason to sometimes use the hospital. You have to know the family, and if you're not certain they understand your instructions or if you're not sure they're going to come back, they live a long distance from the hospital, it's always safer to keep them with you until you convince yourself there's nothing wrong. By the way, there's a something just came out that all our 
listeners ought to be aware about, and that is Walmart has published this wonderful book on all their $4 antibiotics. And if you look at that book, which everybody in my department now carries, it's good to help parents understand that they can get the drugs their kids need, that sort of thing. There's nothing worse than having a child go through the process, you writing a prescription, and then mother can't get it filled. That's sort of completing the circle of care, and it never looks good for us when we haven't helped them sort of do simple things. Steve, if I could go back, you said it was the standard of care to administer antibiotics in kids who have had blood cultures slash lumbar punctures done. I'm not if they so don't sure. Look well. If they don't look well. Okay. Okay. Well, if they don't look well, they're going to come into the hospital, I would think. Right. If they go home, the question is now, you've done these tests and you've sent the kid home. I think it's reasonable and logical that because, just as you've said, you don't know the results of those blood cultures. You don't know the results of that lumbar puncture. And certainly, although it acknowledged it was a rare event, it did occur that kids who go home after having blood cultures done and lumbar punctures done, it's not unreasonable to put them on antibiotics because you don't know the answer yet. Is that a reasonable statement? Well, again, I think as we mentioned earlier, we don't do blood tests nearly as often as we used to. The days of bacteremia have gone, and it's very unlikely that the child has a bacteremia. If by some chance somebody did a blood count, and it's an elevated white blood count over 15,000, I would say hard to ignore that. I would put that patient on antibiotics while the blood culture is pending. But we rarely do that these days. We rarely get studies on children who look well in the emergency department. Although, to be candid, you're in an academic center, and I don't know that the Baroff rules have everybody appreciates that times have changed and these immunizations have basically made those guidelines obsolete and fairly absurd, actually. I think that there may be some people who still believe in the CBC blood culture business. Obviously, they're not really up to date. They're obviously not subscribers to emergency medical abstracts. But <laughs> I think that it is important to acknowledge that we should have changed our practice. I once made a comment that we're two vaccinations away from wondering why we train pediatricians at all. <laughs> I think well, Steve will probably give you a good answer to that. There are still some children out there who can fool you. And so you, you still have to have a healthy respect for a febrile child and not just assume that they're all viruses. Unfortunately, we still see children with bacterial meningitis. And we do want to examine them carefully, document carefully, and consider diagnostic studies on some of them. Can I just ask a quick clinical question? So, Steve, how do you think the meningococcal vaccination will change this? The current recommendations, I think, is the age of 11, although there are some people trying to push it down to the age of 2. Is there any new vaccinations coming? Is there any push to give this meningococcal vaccination to little kids? Well, I think it's going to happen down the road, but not in the immediate future. I haven't heard of it happening in the next year or so. I think it's going to be a while before that happens. But that is still the most dreaded disease in pediatric emergency medicine because it is so rapid, so devastating, and everybody looks back and expects you to, as a doctor, why didn't you make this diagnosis when you had them a few hours ago? But it may not have been obvious a few hours previously, so it's still a nightmare for us. Steve, before we move on to a totally different area, it just came to my mind, have you been involved with any intussusception cases? Yes, in terms uh, of malpractice. Well, yes, I guess that they're kind of uncommon, but I thought of that as maybe being certainly an atypical 
problem in association with abdominal pain, but it supposedly occurs in kids, and I think we probably are supposed to be aware of it. We see lots of cases of intussusception. I had one two nights ago on my shift, and a second one that we thought might have an intussusception who did not have it, but it's still something that occurs regularly in pediatrics. And I think they have a current jelly stool. Steve? Well, if they have a current jelly stool, the diagnosis is pretty easy. Unfortunately, that's a late finding with an intussusception, so you can't really rely on that. You want to make the diagnosis sooner. And I think the key is if you see a little baby, it's usually young infants, less than two years of age or so, more than three months old and and usually less than two or certainly less than three years of age, although we've seen it in older kids at times. It's a child who's usually lethargic unusually lethargic. They may have only vomited once or twice, and yet they're very lethargic. That should make you worry about intussusception. And they're lethargic because it's believed that the intussusception produces a toxin, a neurotoxin, that will cause that lethargy. So if the patient's more lethargic than you'd expect, I'd be worried about it. Certainly if they have a mass in the abdomen, I'd be worried about it. A sausage-shaped mass, I'd be concerned. If the child has bilious vomiting, I would be concerned. And then, of course, if they pass, if they have blood in their stool or a current jelly stool, I would be very concerned about that baby. The Ukrainian kids have kielbasa-shaped masses in the, in the, <laughs> in the right upper yeah, quadrant well, or left lower quadrant. I think it's probably culturally dependent. Do we, at this point in time, still make that diagnosis? Can we make that diagnosis with dye from below as opposed to a CT scan of the belly? Well, actually, the dye, both of them are not ideal. We'll get a plain film of the abdomen, which may be convincing. It may show evidence of obstruction, but the plain film is not always sensitive, and so you can't rely on that. I think if you have a strong suspicion, you need to convince your radiologist to do an air contrast enema. That's what's usually done now. Rather than putting barium in, air serves the same purpose. It will identify the intussusception and it will cure the intussusception. And so that's probably the way to go. And if by chance there is a perforation while they're injecting this air, at least you're going to have air in the gut rather than barium. What about the use of ultrasound? Have you got any experience with that? Is that something that if the ultrasound is completely negative, you can rule out the disease? Yes, I think that's a good screening test. If you have an ultrasonographer available to you, that's a good screening test. It's an unnecessary test because the air contrast enema does both the diagnosis and the therapy. But if you're not sure, you can get the ultrasound and then you can do the enema after you've made your diagnosis. So that's certainly a reasonable way to go. Steve, you made the point that bilious vomiting is a kind of a red flag. I think that's an important observation, not only for intussusception, but there are some other disorders characterized by bilious vomiting. It seems all of them are bad. Well, not all of them, most of them. We certainly see a child who's been vomiting multiple times. They may bring up some bilious material, and we'd be less worried about that. Certainly in infancy, bilious vomiting in infancy is a bad sign. And then we would certainly be worried about a volvulus, malrotation with volvulus. Don't let anyone talk you out of that. If you have a little baby with bilious vomiting, you have to rule out a volvulus. And then the other kind of vomiting we are kind of aware of is projectile vomiting of hypertrophic pyloric stenosis. Usually that diagnosis is not going to result in any kind of lawsuits because it'll ultimately be made and the issues really are basically ones of hydration and nutrition. I agree. We by, really by the see way, that I think it's cause of malpractice. I think it's hard to decide whether a child is having projectile vomiting. Having had three kids, I think this is a difficult label to put on kids. What's projectile? 
I mean, if they actually hit the other side of the room, I mean, how do you decide that? This term is tossed around a lot. Are there any qualifiers on projectile vomiting? How many like, feet, how many yards, any of that kind of stuff? I'm not aware of any studies to, <laughs> to pin down projectile vomiting. I agree with you. That's a term that's overused. Craig, it's part of the art of medicine. You might be familiar yes, with the concept. Yeah, yeah, well, what can I tell you? I mean, I always love that when a nurse has written projectile vomiting, and I have absolutely no idea what that term means, and, I, I, and I, just, I just want somebody to define it. It's like, you know, they've got too much stool. Well, how much stool are you supposed to have on your plane film? I have no idea. I think the best that we can do to use that term is if the mother reports the emesis comes up very effortlessly and just kind of dribbles out the patient's mouth, we might be thinking more of a diagnosis of gastroesophageal reflux, which is also very common in the same age group as the babies who have pyloric stenosis. If there's more forceful vomiting, well, it could be pyloric stenosis, it could be gastroenteritis, it could be a lot of things, but that's the only distinction we're trying to make. Is this reflux, is it very effortless, or is it forceful vomiting? And then if you're stuck, you might need to get an ultrasound there to help you make the diagnosis of pyloric stenosis. Greg, have you seen the commercial of the kid who's doing E-Trade and he spits up a little bit? Yeah, I on love the TV. that commercial. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a great that's, commercial. That is not projectile vomiting. That's a little spit up, as we call it in the trade. <laughs> you know. Thank you, Rick. I'm glad you have the technical terms down on this thing. By the way, the next ad that he did, which has Bobo the Clown in it, is even better. <laughs> yeah, he hired Bobo. Well, that brings up, somebody mentioned constipation. And I see this diagnosis put down with some frequency for people who have some kind of abdominal-related problems, and it always makes me a little nervous to tell you the truth. Steve, what do you think about that diagnosis? Well, it is very, very common in our emergency department, and it probably is the most common cause of abdominal pain in children. And certainly, children are not going to give you the history. Most children lie about their bowel habits. Most parents have no idea about their child's bowel habits. And so you're not going to make this diagnosis by history, and sometimes the physical exam is unhelpful. So I would say a lot of times we do end up getting a plain film of the abdomen. I hate to admit that, but I do sometimes irradiate the child and get a simple plain film if I'm not really sure what's going on with their abdominal pain. And constipation is very common. If your exam is concerning for appendicitis, you better keep going with your evaluation. But if you weren't worried about your exam, getting a plain film to convince the family that this is what's going on is sometimes helpful. And, of course, you've done research to come up with an appropriate fecal residue scale uh, <laughs> that lets us know how much stool ought to be in there. And those kids, do you advocate doing the small finger digital rectal to see if there's impaction, something like that? I usually don't. Again, if my rectal exam is uh, positive, well... Okay, that's great. If it's negative, there still could be a lot of stool just outside of the reach of my finger. So if the patient tells me they haven't had a bowel movement for several days, well, I've got my diagnosis. Otherwise, I might get a plain film of the abdomen and make the diagnosis that way. But you're correct. I think uh, you're sarcastically telling me that everybody has stool in their abdominal film, and I agree with that. And you have to make a decision. Is this more than usual, or is this just normal fecal material on the x-ray that I'm looking at? And it's a judgment call there. It's, it's kind of the yeah, yeah. art of reading those films. <laughs> it must be. Neil Little always tells a story of a man who is the resident came in, showed him the x-ray and said, see all that stool? And the guy said, well, that's where I keep mine. Where do you keep yours? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. We do overcall it sometimes. Yeah. Do we move on to the scrotum? Steve, you put down scrotal problems are a source of malpractice suits. I'm kind of surprised at that, to tell you the truth. 
I'm surprised too. It's hard for me to imagine that failure to diagnose testicular torsion or delay in diagnosis is a major cause of malpractice lawsuits in pediatrics, but it's true. And I think it's partly because some physicians don't realize that you can have testicular torsion in little babies. Many doctors think, oh, this is a teenager problem, but there really is a bimodal peak and you can have testicular torsion in little babies and it's just not expected. Also, I think the major problem is that many doctors fail to get the child undressed and look at the genitalia. A boy comes in complaining of abdominal pain, the physician may immediately be thinking this is a gastrointestinal problem, and the boy may be reluctant to say my scrotum is twice the size as it should be, so we have to look. That's the key. Getting the diaper off, getting the underwear off, and looking at the genitalia is the key. Well, I once had a case where a two-year-old was diagnosed as having acute epididymitis, but that was a sexually active two-year-old. I know you're joking about it, but it's no joke. There are doctors who make that diagnosis somewhat cavalierly on eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds, and pretty rare to see epididymitis in a child, a prepubertal child, so we should be reluctant about that. Most of them turn out to be torsion of the appendix testis, which is not serious and doesn't usually have a bad outcome. But every once in a while, a doctor's going to miss a case of testicular torsion by putting a false label on it of epididymitis. We call those guys the defendant doctor. I'm not sure the blue dot sign is real. I've been told about it for years. Maybe I've seen it once, but you know what? I don't depend on that to decide whether I'm calling the urologist. And my view of it is I don't see that many young kids with painful testes. I'm going to make a phone call to urology at that moment in time to ask him just one thing. Is there a test that you need, or are you going to just take this kid to the operating room and explore? And again, all the old guys, they just take them up and explore them. It's a 10-minute procedure. Well, I agree with you. The blue dot sign is highly overrated. I think I've seen one in my career. I tried to take a picture of it. It didn't come out very well. We just don't see it very often. And if you have a concern, I think you should call the urologists. And they're at all smart. They would jump out of bed and come in to help you evaluate that patient because they don't want to be named in the lawsuit either. And they know how difficult it is to make the diagnosis. And I think the other point you make is don't delay care by getting an ultrasound test That may delay care. Call the urologist while you're getting the ultrasound, but at least have things in the works that your urologist is going to come in to see the patient and take him to the OR because we all know that time is of the essence when you're dealing with a testicular torsion. An ultrasound is between 5 and 10% wrong. I think if they're clinically tender, their own literature in urology says, just explore them. Yeah. I mean, what's the worst that can happen in that procedure? Nothing. Now, some of them, the experienced pediatric urologists may come in and say, I don't need to go to the OR. I'm comfortable that this is a torsion of the appendix testis. But if there is any question, I agree, that's the safer path to go. Castration by procrastination, I think is the phrase. Exactly right. Here's another case where you wonder what the damages are. Why should money change hands? Is it an issue of fertility? Well, I'll give you the money when you can't have a child kind of thing. But that's not the case. You only need one testicle. And is it an issue of, well, my kid's only got one testicle now and you can't take a shower in the gym kind of thing because the boys are going to make fun of him? Well, we'll put a prosthesis in there that's as big as a chicken egg if you want kind of thing. So what's the deal here? Where are the damages? It's a family who's angry with the physician for not making the diagnosis for not calling in the specialist, for being a little too cavalier about the diagnosis, and that they want to get back at the doctor. There may not be real damages, although they perceive that the child's half a man of what he used to be, but I agree with you. There's not real damages. It's just a matter of anger and sometimes difficult to defend the case in court, so there's going to be a settlement of the case. By the way, Rick, 
it depends on whether it's my testicle or yours, whether it's the first testicle or the second testicle. I think there are other factors involved here. And I have seen that case where it was the child's only remaining testicle because there was an undistended testicle on the other side. There can be some damages here. All right. That's an unusual case. We're talking about the garden variety case. You hear this all the time. And you can't have a lawsuit without damages. You can have angry people, but you have to win a lawsuit. And they seem to win, and I don't understand why. Well, the other problem is, is if the testicle's dead and the diagnosis isn't made early, then you develop testicular antibodies and you can become sterile from it. So that is an issue in a lot of those cases. Well, I'll pay you the money when you don't have a kid. Well, then, it's, <laughs> then you've passed time frame for litigation and he wants to have kids when he's 25, but this happened when he was... Well, we'll put it in a bank account and you can get the money when you don't have your kids. I don't get it. But in any case, I do know that it's on the list. The other thing to remember with testicular torsion is that a history of trauma can be confusing. There's lots of teenage boys out there who get kicked in the nuts and come in complaining a couple of days later. And it could be confusing to the emergency physician when, in fact, this child has a testicular torsion. So you have to take that child carefully. And I would agree with Greg. If there's a child who's got a tender, swollen hemiscrotum, Call the urologist and let them help you manage the patient. Because it kind of depends on what they think they need to trigger them going to the operating room. And I'm perfectly willing to listen to what they have to say. Let me mention one other thing that I've seen two lawsuits on, relatively rare problems, but they're hair tourniquets of the penis. And uh, last night, actually, on my last shift. No kidding. Always in pretty much in blonde mothers. And these kids come in and they think they've got an infection at the tip of their penis. And if you don't look carefully, you don't pick up the fact that it's being strangulated. Right. We've seen them on young girls. We had one with strangulation of the clitoris not too long ago. We certainly see them on the fingers and toes very often. And I dealt with one the other night on my shift as well. The clitoris? Yeah. That's quite a clitoris. Yeah, it can happen, though, as the mother's changing the diaper. This is the mother's hair attacking the newborn child because now the hair is not being taken care of the way it used to be before the child was born. It's totally <laughs> neglected. The hair says, we're going to attack this child. They sacrifice one of their own and go after this kid. That's how it's teleologically explained. That is the greatest explanation of hair tourniquets that I've ever heard. That's brilliant. Yeah, that's very good, Rick. The Onion will want to do an article with you on that one. You know, if I could get back to something that came up before, because I'm involved in a case now where the parents did call in. They went to an urgent care and the parents did call in and the kid was a little worse than he was before. And he was specifically told, if your kid is worse, give us a call. So the parents did call and the kid is on antibiotics for some purported infection. And the advice was, well, continue the antibiotics and come on back tomorrow if he's not any better. That phrase... Don't even go there, Rick. Uh, We're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If there's any question, the only response on the phone ought to be is, come on down. Let us take a look again. That's just it. Tell anything to the phone. That phrase was not made by the doctor. It was made by some person who's allowed to speak to patients who views the patients as a pain in the butt. And if I can keep one patient out of here, I've done a good thing. Doctors would generally not do that. But... I'm afraid that in this case, it was a healthcare worker who said, look it, I just prevented us from getting another case, and now they're in big, big trouble. Yeah, emergency department directors have to, to have a policy against that. It's dangerous for the physician to give advice over the phone, let alone an unskilled worker. Vince Verdial did a very interesting study 
on phone advice, and he right. he, he set it up. Out of Pittsburgh, yeah, people called in. He had an actress who'd call in and said, right. my baby's has a temperature and it won't come down. Do you realize most of the time they didn't ask the age of the kid? And if right. they ask, the kid's two weeks old. It's unbelievable what phone advice variations there are in the country. Right. And they often didn't advise them to come into the hospital even after they knew the age of the patient. Things get missed on the telephone, and it's not a good idea to give telephone advice. Unfortunately, yep. there are still pediatric offices that do that. They have to do that to stay in business, but they get into trouble that way. There's no reason for us in emergency medicine to be giving advice like that. Particularly since we don't know the patients, we don't have any rapport with those people. And how good are you on the telephone? I'm only so good when I'm there in front of you. And I bet, Steve, you know and I know that we pick up 80% of the clues on that kid by the gestalt of taking a look in the first 10 seconds. Definitely. Without that gestalt, I don't know if they're sick. And your history is guided often by what you find on your physical exam. You're going to go back and ask them on more questions or how long has this rash been here. On the telephone, you're depending on the mother to tell you those facts. It's tough to practice medicine, as you said, even when you have them in front of you and you can do a full history in physical. It's impossible to do a good history in physical by telephone and you're taking a big risk that way. Steve, one of the points that you made, which I think is really important, is that pediatricians' offices give lots and lots and lots of telephone advice and they usually get away with it not because they're any smarter than we are, but because the vast majority of the illnesses that children have are self-limiting, or if they can benefit from treatment, they'll get the treatment the next day. It'll be the ear infection or the sore throat or something like that. But we sometimes give pediatricians some kind of credit that they are particularly good at giving phone advice, and that's why we ask them often, what would you do? And the doctor says, I'll see them in the morning. That's one of the reasons, I think, that we should, in fact, not think that they are particularly good at this. Just the fact that they do it doesn't mean it's good, and the literature suggests it's not good. And when you're dealing with non-sick children 99% of the time, no matter what advice you give, it'll be just fine. Well, there's no question. We're lucky in pediatrics, and most of them get better no matter what we do. They get better in spite of us. But I can tell you, pediatricians get burned fairly often by giving phone advice. And they often will ignore the patient who's called two or three times. I still find pediatricians saying, well, wait till tomorrow, wait till tomorrow. After the mother continues to call, see the patient. Send them to the emergency department. Let us see the patient. They get into trouble when they continually tell the parent to wait until tomorrow. They have a pretty good track record because, first of all, the people answering their phones have had some training in phone management. It's not just a clerk who picks up the telephone. It's a well-trained nurse who has received some training in phone management. And they do also have a low threshold of sending the child to the ED, but they can still get into trouble. There have been many, many lawsuits of them getting burned in the office, too. If you ever listen to what's happening at triage, the patient is either there way too early or way too late. It's, well, why are you here? He's not that sick, or why did you wait so long at home? It's like when I was on surgery as a junior. I always ask the surgeon, do you want the knots cut too long or too short? Just let me know now so (laughs) that we can get it done right. Steve, you made a list of some other things that you think that are worthy of keeping doctors out of trouble. Let's go down that list and see if we've caught everything that you think is there. Okay. Well, child abuse, I think, is one. It doesn't happen very often. I think emergency physicians are pretty good at recognizing and reporting child abuse. You certainly have to take a careful history and make sure that the injury that you're seeing matches the history that was given. 
And if the parents are acting suspiciously, if they're changing their story, or the injury doesn't match the history that you received, or if the injury looks like a particular pattern, you need to report that as child abuse. And don't. I've got several it. cases, though, where the emergency doc didn't ask for certain things to be done. And one of them had to do with a SIDS case. I don't know what number you're using now, Steve, but I was trained that 30% of SIDS can be child abuse. And I think that you got to follow the same pattern every time, no matter how reasonable the family looks, you can be fooled. I have been personally fooled by what I thought was a wonderful family, but it turns out the father was out of work. I didn't get that history, but he was out of work, under stress, and in the end, he had shaken his baby. And it does happen to nice families. Anybody can lose their cool, and it can be any socioeconomic group, and even nice families can abuse their child. So I agree, you can't be fooled by how the family appears to you when they come to the emergency department. You still have to have a suspicion about every injury that you examine. Just understand that child abuse is definitional. My children thought they were being abused when they were forced to drink a domestic Beaujolais. So it <laughs> all depends on who you're talking to. I think emergency physicians should recall that you don't always have to be right when you report the child abuse. You just have to have a legitimate suspicion, and that's enough to call the authorities and report it as suspected child abuse. There is a very rare chance that you could end up in a malpractice suit if it turns out that this was a non-intentional injury, that you overcall the abuse, but 99.9% .9 of the time the case will be thrown out in court. Your lawyer is going to be able to prove that you had nothing vindictive against this family, that you were acting in the best interest of the child, and that you reported a suspicion, not a definite case of child abuse, just a suspicion is all we're required to do. As a matter of fact, in the state of Michigan, there is no case where someone has reported the suspicion of child abuse where there's ever been a successful action. And there actually was a case that was attempted, and that was on a child who had osteogenesis imperfecta. Yes. So with their fourth or fifth fracture, they reported them, and then they were sent down to the University of Michigan. The osteogenesis imperfecta was diagnosed. Action was taken by the family, and the court immediately tossed it and said, we would be sending the wrong social message here. They did what they thought was right in the defense of the child. Now, just because it didn't turn out to be child abuse doesn't mean they didn't do the right thing. And quite frankly, that's what caused them to get the proper examination and proper diagnosis on the child. So I think that report away, if you have good faith belief that there's a problem, I've never seen an action against an emergency doc for good faith activity. I agree. Not a successful action. I mean, they can sue us for anything, not a successful, but, but right. they're not going to win the case unless they've proven that you really had something against the family and were trying to get back at them for something, which is pretty bizarre. Right. Any other things on the list, Steve, that you think we ought to cover as we're kind of getting to the end? Myocarditis, I think, is a tough one. I have been involved as an expert witness in some cases of myocarditis with emergency physicians, and it is a difficult diagnosis to make. I'm always sympathetic to the emergency doctor who didn't make the diagnosis. In fact, a study that we did, almost half the cases were called something else before the diagnosis was made. So I know it's a tough diagnosis to make. I would just caution emergency physicians, if you're worried about the way the child looks again, they don't look well, don't let them go home even if you haven't figured out what's wrong with the patient. And don't just assume that this is a viral gastroenteritis and dehydration. Consider the possibility of myocarditis if the child has chest pain and fever, if they have tachypnea with no good explanation or tachycardia with no good explanation. And also, if you thought the child might have gastroenteritis, I had a little vomiting, a little belly pain, and you gave some IV fluids, if they still have abnormal vital signs, they're still a little tachycardic or orthostatic, 
when you stand them up, you should consider that maybe this is a case of myocarditis and do some further investigation like a chest x-ray and a cardiogram. I actually have a case going on right now with a two-year-old who had a myocarditis. The bottom line is, though, both sides, cardiologists have said, even if we knew they had it, it's unlikely we could do anything to treat it. Right. And I think that viral myocarditis is not a disease which we've got a drug in our box that's going to take that away. From a medical standpoint, you're right. There isn't much to do except to admit the patient, observe the patient, support the patient. From a legal standpoint, it always looks worse for the emergency doctor when you've sent the child home to die rather than have them die in the hospital. It's always uh, tougher to defend in a malpractice suit. There but for the grace of God go I, because if I'd seen the kid, it might be my name on the summons and complaint. Well, I think if that's the case, then the doctor's in good shape. If the expert witness can say there is no reason here that I would have suspected myocarditis, then I think the doctor has a good defense. On the other hand, if the chart is showing that the child was tachypneic and tachycardic and without a good explanation, maybe the child shouldn't have been sent home. Or if the child's refusing to drink and seems lethargic, then the emergency doctor is going to have trouble defending the case. But otherwise, I would agree with you. We can't always make this diagnosis, and the literature shows that. You know, one of the things, Greg, that you've mentioned a lot in the past is that the diagnosis of gastroenteritis and how it is often problematic. Certainly, appendix is one of the options. But my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong here, guys, is that to have gastroenteritis, you need a gastro, you need to be vomiting, and you need to have diarrhea, enteritis. And both of those elements are fundamental to the diagnosis, vomiting and diarrhea. And if you don't have diarrhea, then technically speaking, you don't have gastroenteritis. As a corollary to that, Steve, what do you see happening in terms of the dispensing of a Dancitron for home use? I try to avoid that. I think it's a great drug, and we do use it all the time in the emergency department. I'm a little reluctant to recommend it for home use. I think we are going to run into some cases where we've masked the the problem by getting a false sense of security by sending them home with an anti-emetic, when in fact we're missing a brain tumor. As you point out, vomiting is not always due to gastroenteritis. If it's vomiting alone, we should be worried about other conditions like a brain tumor, diabetic ketoacidosis. There have been malpractice lawsuits where someone failed to diagnose DKA in a child, thought the vomiting was due to gastroenteritis. So we should consider other possible causes of vomiting and not just send the patient home with oral antiemetics. I'm not in favor of sending home people with a bowl full of this medication that they can use for the next week. But you know, one dose of that in the department so that the family can sleep that night and the kid can hold down fluids. I don't have any problem with that. No, definitely not. I think we were way too afraid of this. I was that generation when they looked at anybody who used an anti-emetic at all as some sort of backwoods barbarian in medicine. And the the true academics wouldn't do that. Well, you know what? Till you have your own kid who's vomiting like crazy, you don't (laughs) realize how useful that stuff is. Well, I agree with you. In the old days, we were worried that the other antiemetics had some extra pyramidal side effects in children. Ondansetron has very, very few side effects, and we're much more willing to use it. My only point is here is that you want to be sure that you know what you're using it for. Once I'm convinced I know what this child has, I know he has a gastroenteritis, he doesn't have a brain tumor, he doesn't have DKA, he doesn't have appendicitis, I'm more than willing to make the patient feel better with an antiemetic such as Ondansetron. 
I was going to say one of the things I kind of get some solace about is I like to see diarrhea in association with vomiting. It kind of says the problem is in the GI tract here rather than just vomiting alone. Vomiting alone, I think, is a much more difficult kind of assessment to handle. I agree. Vomiting can be associated with some very serious conditions. We talked about meningitis and meningococcemia and sepsis, and that could be all you get, a little fever and some vomiting, and that could be all you're seeing in a picture of a septic baby. So when you see the diarrhea, we're reasonably reassured that this is probably a viral gastroenteritis. Non-bloody diarrhea is basically a laundry problem, not a medical problem. (laughs) Greg, you have such a way with these phrases, Greg. All right, let's see. Where are we on the list? I guess slip capital femoral epiphysis. I don't know if you want to talk about that. I would hope that people recognize that. It's still amazing to me that some people misdiagnose skiffy. But if you have a teenager, a young teenager with a limp, you do have to worry about slip capital femoral epiphysis. Don't be misled if they're complaining of knee pain or thigh pain. I hope all the listeners recognize that children with slip capital femoral epiphysis will have referred pain to the distal femur or to the knee. And the real problem is in the hip. So if you do a careful hip exam, you're not going to miss the diagnosis. And then you're going to get an x-ray. And once you've made the diagnosis, the key is to admit the patient to the hospital or at least call your orthopedic surgeon and get the patient off of his legs. If he goes home and continues to walk, he could get worse. And then you're going to end up with a malpractice suit. Greg, you got the wine of the month? I do, Rick. And interestingly, we have our usual group of folks who are writing in saying things like, Greg, you ignorant slut, how can you say anything good about a Pinot Grigio? Well, well, in fact, this is from a good friend of ours in Toledo, Rob Wood. Rob, sorry about that. I know you're a red wine guy, so we're back on red wines. Let me give you a great wine for the money. Now, California has some of the best wines in the world, but I would let you know right now that the ratings on some of the 100-acre wines, which are some of the best in California, they rate with the Opus Ones, that sort of thing, in the 90 range, very good stuff. Let me give you one that's a better buy for the money. It's called J.C. Sellers. J.C., that stands for Jeff Cohn, who is the winemaker involved. And the 2006 Syrah is out, Caldwell Vineyards. It's Napa. And this carries a Parker rating of 92. And you can buy this for 48 bucks a bottle, as opposed to the 100-acre wine, which is $250 a bottle. Parker says it's just as good. Telephone number 510-456-5900. And they'll be happy to send you all that you want. So there you go, Rick. $48 a bottle? That's way out of budget already. Come on now. Wait, wait, wait a second. Rick, Rick, I don't put this out just for you groundlings. I understand <laughs> that you don't drink anything that doesn't come in a box. And, you know, two-buck chuck is over your price limit. I understand that. But we have a few listeners who actually want a finer wine occasionally. And not everybody's a groundling, Rick. And so all right, all it's, right. a, it's okay for us to do this. Yeah, I'm a volume guy, and so at $48 for 750 mils, that is incredibly expensive urine on my part. <laughs> you wouldn't appreciate good- it either. I'm in good company. Mel and I are uncouth when it comes to these wines. Next month, we're going to do Mad Dog 2020, Rick. So uh, there be you a go. Lot yeah. Okay, guys, thanks very much. That's the February issue of Risk Management Monthly. I want to thank our guest, Steve Selps, Greg, Mel. 
And yours truly, Rick Bicotta, signing off. Bye-bye. See you next time. Bye-bye.